with the ADB. Uh, I'd like to welcome you to this session, which uh, Melanie tells me is at the conversation end of the conference. So, of course, that means that you guys have to engage as well. So we're looking forward to questions from you. Um, there's been a little bit of a shaking up in this session. They've changed around the order on you. Uh, and as, as it's not a panel like the last session, so I say they'll be all speaking for about 10 minutes, maybe a little less. Um, depends on how tight I am with them. Uh, I'll crack my whip if I need to, because I want to ensure that you all have a chance to ask some questions. And uh, of course, conversations can continue afterwards as well. So this session is publishing in the digital age and privacy, access and rights. Okay? We're going to be considering some of those knotty problems which you encounter when publishing dictionaries of biography. Uh, those which actually cause you to stop, think, and perhaps then rethink. So I'm looking forward to the way they tackle this. I'll be interested, probably taking notes myself. Uh, the first of our speakers, Professor Melanie Nolan, as I say, they've changed it around. Melanie, of course, is the director of the National Centre of Biography and my boss, so I'll be kind to her. Thank you, Melanie. And they're all going to be speaking, or some of them are going to be speaking while sitting, just to make it a little bit more relaxed for you. I will. I'm not going to um, uh, talk to this very closely. Um, I want to draw from a number of the points that have already been made in, um, in previous sessions. Um, particularly Kent's um, incredibly excellent um, um, presentation. The notion that we can bung anything on the web is um, a really good idea, but we are constrained in many ways. We can't use YouTube. There are many other um, constraints and constrictions on what we can put on our website. So I want to I navigate that, but it also um, speaks to the ADB being a slightly different um, animal than maybe some of the other um, sites we heard earlier today. The ADB has community and we engage, but we avoid um, social media and we've done it deliberately um, because we have a community and we're doing the, at the moment we're editing um, articles of people who died between 1991 and 2000 and we're perilously close to the present and we have uh, uh, people who are passionate and jealous and uh, feel they own the biographies and we there's not there's not that many but we have to engage with our community and some of them are very um, upset or um, extremely happy about the articles of their relatives that we put on the web and we go through some litigation um, as it were with um, a small number but it's a significant number and if we if we linked to Wikipedia there would be endless um, um, uh, issues that were raised in that forum and we still think that we need to have um, an authoritative um, voice on the articles that go up. So look, I just want to explain just briefly, we, there are a number of acts which um, structure the material we, have ac we, we can access for our articles, um, the use of the ADB articles, um, we have files for all our uh, articles, they're paper, um, <laughs> we still, we still online but we still have a paper version of all our files and they're in the ANU archives and people consult them um, all the time and increasingly. Um, so the 1968 Commonwealth Common Co Copyright Act, um, if you go on to the ADB as um, an author and look at, or invited as an author, you'll see that we, uh, the a a D ANU holds copyright to all of the articles and so um, having had the copyright given to us as a custodial um, uh, gift, if you like. We have to police that. We have to look after it. 
we have an obligation to our community um, about the use, the reproduction, um, any changes. If there are changes, in, and uh, Chris Kinnean is leading a revisions um, uh, process on volumes one and two, and every uh, author who is still with us, um, the committee that's doing that approaches the um, author and lets them know what's happening to their article. So we, we have a, um, a, a care, if you like, an obligation of care with our articles that we take quite seriously. The 1983 Commonwealth Archives Act and all its amendments. So we've taken our, um, our, all our archives over to the ANU um, archives. Um, and under the uh, Act, it was changed. At one point, you couldn't look at anything that was um, less than 30 years. The Act changed, um, and it's now 20 years. We're in a transition. We're actually about 25. Um, we'll get to 20 um, eventually. Um, and that material is closed um, you know, for, um, for privacy um, and for um, the purposes of that Act. If it's not uh, under the 83 Commonwealth Archives Act, then the 1988 Commonwealth Privacy Act and all of its um, uh, aspects um, are, are valid. And that's why when you go into Trove, you can't see anything, bef the, the papers before 1955, uh, sorry, after 55, which is really difficult for a um, 20th century historian because Trove's so wonderful. But the um, copyright and the other um, um, provisions um, prevent that. So the ADB works with this, um, this legislation and also with our community. And I just want to say lastly with the issue of um, privacy and this conversation we have with the um, authors and the families. We, have, we avoid, in general, family members writing ADB articles. And we do, we do it um, for good reason, but um, we're on, online and family members, it, has, it hasn't really stopped um, uh, family members reading it and having opinions. And as I say, we're often, um, you know, approached by uh, family members about articles, some of which have been, um, you know, some time um, uh, published. They've, they've, they've just noticed they've been online. And so what, what kind of um, policy do we um, adhere to? We will change things if they're matters of documentary um, evidence. So if someone can show us that um, we've got something wrong, as it were, then we will change it immediately. Um, online showing what it was before. If it's a matter of interpretation, then that's the nature of biography. People are allowed to have opinions. It is the nature of biography that people um, interpret. Um, and so uh, we have um, authorial responsibility and our authors take responsibility for the opinions and interpretations that they've made in the articles. And so we consult the author and if they do not want to change it, um, then it, it remains as it is until we have our um, revisions. Now, in all of this, we have a policy, I suppose you could describe it as um, compassionate truth. That's a concept which Michael King um, talked about when he wrestled with an angel, when he was um, writing um, Janet Frame's um, biography, dealing with um, a living person, um, stepping lightly on someone's um, uh, uh, reputation on their lives. We try, if we can, um, to... Uh, engage with the community and not to upset or offend in any, um, uh, you know, um, blunt or um, uh, a blunt way. So we have a conversation um, with our authors. So we, our privacy and access um, issues, we're constrained sometimes legislatively, sometimes by policy and sometimes by our culture.
Melanie, true to her word, has been brief. Thank you, Melanie. And uh, we'll continue on with, we've got Professor Susan Ware next, who you've already met, of course. You've met everyone on the panel. General editor of the American National Biog Dictionary of Biography. Sorry. American National... Oh, God. I'm going to muck it up every time. I'm sorry. Susan, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> American National Biography. Thank Say you. it six times. No. And no. repeat. No. So, um, well, here I am again. Um, I think those of you who heard me talk yesterday know that I am very much a 20th century historian, uh, and my attempts in my own work, uh, anytime I've tried to venture back, like the 19th century, it just seems like a true foreign country to me. I just don't feel comfortable there. Uh, I'm a real 20th century girl, but I am so envious and jealous of my colleagues who research and write in the 19th century America or earlier where everything, all the sources are in the public domain. There are no copyright issues, there are no permissions, everything is free and open. I know it's not really free and open, um, but it is such a different world than the one that I have always navigated as a 20th century historian where anytime I want to use an image uh, or use a collection uh, or use material that is copyrighted, I have to get permission to do it. Uh, and I do think how much time and money I could save if I could just push myself back a little bit, but I'm not gonna change at this point. And I think in the 21st century, the issues of copyright and more generally intellectual property are even more central. Uh, both to our broader culture and especially to the work we do in the biographical reference world. Um, they're more central and it is very expensive uh, to try and, and do these things. And I think one of the themes of the conference so far has been, I couldn't decide whether it was follow the money or show me the money. I think we follow the money. We'd like someone to show us the money. Um, but again, what things cost uh, has a real impact on what we can do. So just one of the points, one of the two points I want to put out on the, on the table for our discussion is I think there's a real uh, desire on the part of many of us to enhance our, the wonderful text that we produce with things like a speech of Churchill's or a clip of Amelia Earhart touching down in Paris in 1932 or a Hollywood movie or a Disney song, <laughs> you know, not to go near Disney. Um, but uh, all of these things are under copyright and are often aggressively policed. And it's a real challenge to find things that are 20th century materials uh, that are in the public domain. In the United States, our main go-to source is the Library of Congress and the related parts of the Smithsonian, the National Portrait Gallery, and there is a sense that, that sources that are there we can use without having to go through the extensive permission um, process. But I, I have these conversations with students or people who think that because it's on YouTube, it's okay to use. Well, it's not. Uh, they haven't cleared the permissions, uh, and it's certainly not something we could ever link in a biographical dictionary. And I think what's frustrating for me is that there isn't the equivalent 
of what I'm used to with text of fair use, where you can quote 300 words from a book, or if it's an academic, not a trade publisher, you can quote a thousand words. That's a clear standard, and you can, I've many times counted my words to make sure that I'm still under fair use. There doesn't seem to be something like that. So, at, so where that leaves us is anything we wanna use either has to be free or we're gonna have to start spending money, which is something that we are reluctant to do. There's a somewhat different copyright issue that, that uh, all biographical dictionaries face, and it's one that I've faced at, at the ANB, which is our requirement of our authors that they produce an original piece of, an original material. And um, I have found in my four years as, as editor that it is much more common than I would have suspected for people to recycle often significant amounts of text that they have written or published elsewhere and bring it into their essay. And what they probably don't know is how easy it is for us on the editorial end just to block that, that text, put it in Google or one of, the, one of the searches, and we can tell exactly where it came from. And if it's word by word, we've got a problem because it means that there's a danger that the essay that they're submitting to us, which will be published by the A&B, which is under Oxford University Press, may not, in fact, be an original piece of work. And so uh, the question I have as an editor that I have to finesse is, does it have to be totally different? And of course, this is impossible. There are only so many ways in a biographical essay. You can say somebody was born there, went to school there, then married somebody, and whatever. Is it enough that it has a different tone? If it uses different quotations, is 25% overlap okay? Uh, can it go any higher than that? And it's, it's a real tension, and what it means is that sometimes we lose our best authors because they've already published extensively on the topic and really don't feel that they can come up with something that is truly fresh and original. And I think this is a, a loss, but it is a byproduct of, of where we are on copyright. But I think generally what I try to do is to find the middle ground and to work with the author and say, well, let's vary the structure a little bit or let's have some different quotes or maybe a different ending and see if we can give it a, a different feel so that I can keep it there. Uh, but again, it's something that, that, is, that I wanted to put out there because I think other people um, are having to deal with this as well. So, over to you. Uh, so our next speaker oh. is Associate Professor Gavin McCarthy, Director of the East Scholarship Research Centre at the University of Melbourne. Thank you, Gavin. I'm going to stand up and I'm going to put my hat on and ask the question, do you want Leonard Cohen or not? Because we actually discovered that there is somebody in the audience who actually knows Leonard Cohen, and on that basis, I'll take my hat off. <laughs> um, I want to approach this topic from quite a different perspective because I'm an archivist, and I, in many ways, I love to wear my archives hat, and perhaps that is my archives hat. Um, one of the key, uh, we we I'm, we are involved in a project at the moment uh, with three Indigenous communities and the National Centre for Indigenous Studies here at the ANU, which is to do with the repatriation of stolen ancestral remains from these communities. Um, at the very first meeting of the team, 
which was up here in Canberra at the ANU, uh, where I got to meet many of the, the researchers for the first time, even though we'd been involved electronically in writing the grant application. And there was a significant amount of tension at the table, particularly, you know, I, I felt quite uneasy in many ways because I just didn't know, I didn't have a feel for what this community, how they worked and how things were going to go. The question came up about rights to cultural knowledge. <laughs> this could be a nightmare. And I just said, you know, I just said, look, I've, in all of the work that I've done, I've come to the rather simple understanding that material is either produced to be published or it's not. As an archivist, I spend most of my time dealing with material that was not intended to be published. Now, that's most of the stuff that ends up in the archives, and it's most of the stuff that ends up as data, which so many governments want to put up is open data, and they've had to take so much back because it was never intended to be published. If you take that very simple approach, and you look at, so you, you know, we've been talking about it here, and the issues of when you go into the world of publishing stuff, you go into, you know, there's a, there's a general understanding of the world that you're going to, the legal world of the Copyright Acts and the, other, and the privacy and the things that go with it, the editorial process that you go through to make sure that stuff fits the legal requirements you're working in. So that's fine, and, but what has happened, I think, is in the digital world that there's just been incredible blurring, and that understanding that there is all of this material that was never intended to be published. And if you want to publish, if you want to take it from that world to that world, then you have to be consciously recognising that you are publishing it, and it has to be assessed for all of the problems that it has around privacy and security and whatever other issues that may, you know, all of the other unintended consequences that you have when you deal with material that was never intended for that purpose. So, and one, I think one of the confusions that has happened is the concept of the public domain causes real problems, the concept of public agencies and government causes real problems because it's either records, stuff that was not intended to be published or not. Doesn't matter who created it, it's all fits into those two categories. We don't have, in the archival community, and this is across the whole world, we do not have uh, the, either the information infrastructure or the conceptual understanding of actually how we deal with that problem. Too many archives are actually just trying to take records and put them in the public domain and say, that's fine, as if they can publish them. They can't. You know, they are breaching all sorts of ethical and moral and legal. Uh, even though There's no reason why that material cannot be accessed and used, but it can't be published. And there's probably a really simple, I mean, I've got, again, another really simple way of thinking about, okay, how can we start to, to, to frame how we might cope with this? And one of the things is that when you publish something, the user of that material does not have to identify themselves. When you go to a bookshop and buy a book, you don't have to register. When you go to the library, you might have to register you, but you can just go and borrow a book. You don't have to identify yourself. A fundamental requirement of getting access through a reading room to an archival collection is that you identify yourself, you register, you acknowledge the conditions under which you may be given access to this material. We have to have the same sort of structure in the digital world and the way we make stuff available digitally. It doesn't say it can't be widely available, but the conditions and the normative expectations that go with that must be absolutely clearly stated and people must sign up to them. 
I think if we can build access fabrics around that, we can actually comp deal very differently with the sort of problems that seem to be, un you know, un have no solution, you know, in front of us at the moment. I've been rehearsing this idea for quite some time. It challenges some archivists who really just want to put as much stuff in the public domain as they can. I think, no, this is just absolutely fraught with problems. The, uh, our work with the Forgotten Australians and Formal Child Migrants absolutely underpins this position because there is so much of their personal lives that is locked up in government records around orphanages and those sorts of things. And the work with Indigenous communities, again, absolutely underpins the, the thinking behind this. Uh, recently, I have been, in the last six months or so, I have been asked to participate with the UK National Archives um, in helping them deal with the reality of what is actually happening with government agencies with regards to government records in the United Kingdom. Because all of the old-fashioned stuff and all of the legislation you're talking about is all 20th century, it's all print-based, and a lot of it just does not work in the digital age. What the UK National Archives is facing right now is government agencies coming to them and saying, here is a 125 terabyte drive of stuff, which is all of the emails, everything that ended up on our servers for the last five years. That is the only record we can give you of our activity. There are no files, there are no it, nothing like records in anything in the conventional sense. Full of false positive, full of duplicates. It's just, so the government's going, none of the procedures, guidelines, legal things work in this new world. We have to completely rethink the way we deal with it. And part of the way they, I think you can think about it is not only is the information architecture we were talking about earlier in the previous session can actually be applied in some very innovative ways to this sort of data, but the conditional access model can completely change the way that we engage with that sort of material. Now that's probably a, that's probably exception by 10 minutes. Uh, but anyway, I just thought I'd put that out there because I think, you know, there's some, there are ways to deal with this, there are ways to think about it that work with communities, I think, and there are ways to get around the, the, the conundrums that seem to be facing us. That said, I think, you know, with the ADB and, and publications like that, you have to work within the law. And so there, I suppose there are other of, us, others of us who can be a bit more experimental and trying to tease out how we might find new ways of dealing with the genuine problems we're facing in the 21st century in regards to privacy access. But in the end, it comes back to trust and respectful relationships and somehow we have to build that into the normative processes we, that we want to see there. So thank you. Thank all our speakers. Um, they've been remarkably good on the time. We've got plenty of time left for questions. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I feel rather discomforted by many of the aspects which were raised. I mean, it's always, you always think, I suppose, of the legislation as being a framework to guide you, but as Gavin's just told us, well, it doesn't necessarily help us too much sometimes. And then, of course, there are the difficult questions of the detail, which Susan's gone through, um, which you know, every time I, I pick up a piece of paper and I want to write something that I have to think about, as you all do. So I invite you all to ask questions. In the front. Maggie Byrne. I'm a librarian who's worked with archives all my career. 
um, and I just want to pick up on some of Gavin's things. Uh, I've also had to develop a working knowledge of copyright um, and I've become someone who believes um, less and less in observing the black letter law of Australian copyright by which unpublished material never passes into the public domain, incidentally, Susan, um, and to take uh, risk management approaches. So I'm not focusing on copyright, but I'm focusing on the ethical issues you raised about publishing archives. Should, is there no limit on that? I completely appreciate it with forgotten Australians, with 20th century records, um, with um, repatriation. But, you know, 10,000 people, last time I counted, uh, came into the newspaper reading room here at the library or, or they p some numbers of people came in to use 10,000 items of newspapers. In that very same period, which was a few years ago, there were 25 million uses of newspapers on Trove. The people who use Trove, we know from our market research, come from all over Australia. They don't just come from capital cities or conurbations, they come from remote Australia and regional Australia. Why can't, there mu there's got to be, what's wrong with Barton or Deakin online if they're delivered in context with their finding aids and those sorts of things? Why should you have to register? Uh, I think I've got, I've got a, it's, it, it's, it's not a cheap answer because, you know, we've followed this and, you know, the Barton and story is one that we've been following and the risk management approach is one that we ourselves have taken. And we have digitised collections and put them online with any, without any need for people to sign in. The, um, the only point I'm saying is that you've, you are making a conscious decision to publish those records and to take that risk. And I don't have a problem with that at all, particularly as it's the National Library <laughs> that's doing it. And I, and I think given the age of the material and other things, you know, as stuff gets older and older, the risks diminish. No, and they get smaller and smaller. So, in effect, archival publishing becomes something that is really not problematic. The only reason I'd probably like to see sign-in, even associated, say, with Barton, is so that there are, there are, there's better knowledge of who's using the records and for what purpose. Because I think there's a sense, but maybe not. But you know, but may maybe there's a, there's an opportunity there for for more communities to grow and share and, and to form around you know form you know, communities of interest or practice around the research that's being done, but you know there's um, the issue is you know it gets worse and worse and worse the closer you get to the present and I think we have to have that fundamental piece of infrastructure in the archival toolkit, otherwise we we cannot deal with recent history. Is that enough of an answer? Is you're not convinced? No, 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 I've got no argument about the And in fact, for oral history, which we also deliver online subject to the access conditions, as you know, with really rich um, textual searching uh, possible from the time pointed summary text. We, at the moment, we do have a licence that we ask people to click on with the one paragraph kind of six line bit that tries to say 
in quite informal wor words, you know, this is oral history in using this. I think um, that's a barrier to our oral history online. And I don't know that I care too much about identifying the person. I care about other things that you've raised. And I certainly agree with you about the closer you come to the present, of course, the harder it is. But I think there's a point in time where we just have to say, why can't you have access to this from Cloncurry? Thank you um, very much for the discussion. Uh, one of the things that I think all three of you have um, articulated, which hasn't fully been addressed yet, is this question of copyright and the use of contemporary or modern material. So my question is really to Susan. Are you suggesting that the challenges vis-a-vis -vis permissions and copyright is actually um, limiting what you as an editor can commission and what, in fact, people can contribute when they have been asked to do a particular entry. In other words, how large an obstacle is copyright in shaping a, a dictionary of biography of contemporary, reasonably contemporary figures, and I think it carries over the question also to Melanie. I think the issue of copyright is affects my editing of text the least, as long as I'm sure that someone hasn't just copied and pasted something from somewhere else. So in that case, I feel that I can work quite effectively with an author with words where I think it does have an impact on it's more the final product and what we can do to enhance that experience. And of course, in an in a ideal world, well, an ideal world probably would include copyright because intellectual property is important. Um, but I think there are many things I would like to be able to include if I had an unlimited budget. But in terms of just the day-to-day -day work that I do, uh, I don't sit there and edit it with thinking, oh my God, copyright over my shoulder. Uh, I think it's something that we can handle, handle quite well, as long as we're aware. And I do, but I do think, and I, I know I do this myself, there is a tendency to recycle one's own words when you are faced with a deadline and X number of words. And I think, it, to me, it's been a caution that, that I need to be more careful. And I think we should all think about this. Would you ever include an entry where the author says, um, essentially, I would have written more, but copyright prevents me? <laughs> <laughs> I've actually seen entries where that is stated. Would you ever consider that? Or well, no? I think you're probably, are you talking about examples where the copyright and the permissions, like from an estate, where you really can't, you can't, don't have permission to include anything. That comes up very rarely in our editing because our essays tend to be rather short and we strongly discourage direct quotations precisely because they need to be either cited and if they're in text, then we can just do a, th then it's fair use. If it's something that is permissions or lines of poetry, uh, there, we really are obligated to do that. Um, so I think that, that that's, where it, that's where it comes in. Okay, Melanie? Look, I, look, I agree with um, Susan. I haven't got much to add to that. The ADB has a special um, 
issue, and we get birthdays and marriages. Um, oh, sorry, but is it my paper? Is it? Um, we get um, births, and marriage certificates from um, lunch. <laughs> Um, and so it's, it's interesting that Australian, uh, Australia, you know, for 40 years we had access to birth, death and marriage material. We had special deals with the Register Generals. And um, about 15 years ago, um, privacy legislation was enacted, not, not just at the Commonwealth level, but at each state. And each state interprets it differently. Um, and each of them have the issue of, um, you know, um, protecting people, but also um, avoiding identity fraud. But what's extraordinary is how, how, they, how they interpret that um, differently. And some um, have had been bitten by a case of, um, you know, Western Australia, by a case of um, identity fraud, so won't use any um, of those sources. And we've always considered that to be a sort of a basic um, uh, document on which we um, uh, work on. And, you know, um, 2004, Take Victoria, um, they changed, um, they, they, they work under about four pieces of legislation, um, and we were supposed to get a permission from the um, family before we could get access, and then in 2008 that was taken away, and, and then and, and one of the other states um, uh, lessened their um, uh, stringency. So look, we, we work in the, um, um, with, with that, that's a particular issue that we face, um, how privacy is interpreted in different ways. Um, and um, with effects on um, our ability to edit as we think we ought to. It's interesting that well, it's exactly that issue that was it's one of the key issues for the Forgotten Australians and former child migrants is access to birth, deaths and marriage certificates. And it's, it's a, we've uh, had the same, exactly the same experiences that it's the way that the legislation gets interpreted, not what the legislation says that determines what actually happens. And you know, it was through a whole lot of workshops in Victoria that we actually got the Privacy Commissioner to, to actually say the way that the Act is being interpreted in Victoria is not the way it was ever intended to be interpreted and it is being over-risk averse and over-cautious. And so, and so for a little while we got a little bit of turnaround and we got some really good access and the Forgottens did quite well out of that. And then we got a new Privacy Commissioner and it all went back to square one again and off we go again. Question over here, and then just slightly further along. Oh yes, thanks very much. I'm just wondering if um, Melanie and perhaps um, Gavin and Susan could unpack an idea that Melanie mentioned just in passing. That is the concept of compassionate truth. Would you be able to say a little bit more about that for us, please? Um, look, I, I, maybe I can give you a, an example. Um, you know, someone. Um, um, her husband died at age 50 and everyone thought it was a heart attack. Um, the coroner um, issued a, um, you know, a certificate, um, a, a sort of interim certificate. Everyone thought he died of stress, but he actually died of suicide. He committed suicide. And so we, we um, invite his best friend, who, all these people are in Marathas professors and um, VCs, we invite his best friend to write the article. The best friend doesn't know um, when the article comes in, we edit it. Um, it's a public record coroner's report, um, and we um, um, reveal that he um, committed suicide. And then all hell, there's a huge correspondence, all hell breaks loose. And of course, um, um, we're told we can't have this in there because it will upset and, um, and the family will be very um, 
worried and they've got four sons they don't know um, there are two grandsons they don't know god knows what they're doing reading the ABP articles but anyway these people don't don't know and so we had to go through a th you know therapeutic stage where um, you know everyone had to be told and um, we were t you know at one stage we were told we had to negotiate with the family and and so at one level I could just say well you know get stuff we've got we've written the article you've given us copyright we've edited we've done all the work we'll put it on on um, we have to work through those kinds of issues um, and you know how you describe that um, it's a bit like dealing with privacy commissioners you know um, you know whether you say bluntly but you know uh, how you how you actually put it is it acceptable to family it's uh, so we we deal with the notion that it's worth working through with if you like the stakeholders um, and to get a um, an agreed um, and compassionate result from that kind of um, situation Again, it, uh, it's, it's interesting that, you know, it, the experience with forgotten phones and former child migrants and accessing records of their life and care, you know, when they were kids. Uh, it's, a, it's exactly the same process, and it's a very, very important part of the Finally Connect web resource that we make people aware of what is most likely to happen when they start to go through that process. They are going to come across stuff that is really traumatic and difficult for them to deal with. And so... We have a duty of care to try and help educate them along the way, along that journey that they are going through, that the archives and the people in reading rooms and other places are also well prepared for the sort of things that they're going to come across and maybe the sorts of you know, stuff that they'll have to do to help those people with that part of their lives. It's, I think the, uh, and we've had, um, part of our academic work is we're looking at what's been going on in Sweden and, and other countries in, in regard to this and I, I think the results in terms of if you look at what it means for the whole community are extraordinarily beneficial. Yeah. Well I would the, the flip answer is that uh, the, the uh, ANB does not list cause of death uh, and I think we would, if it was clear that it was a suicide, it had been reported in the New York Times obituary, we would probably include it. But actually, cause of death is a much slipperier concept than one might think. I mean, this is one of these things where if you're in the reference world and you just have this weird relationship to death, you know, all of our subjects have to be death and then we're thinking about causes of death. But it, is, it isn't all that easy to ascertain what actually causes someone to die. And that, that encouraged me to think ex that in most cases we wouldn't include it. But I, I wasn't familiar with this phrase, compassionate truth, but I think it's very similar to what any sensitive editor would do with a text, trying without, without lying or obscuring, trying to find a way to convey something in, in a kind way. And um, the word fudging came up yesterday. <laughs> there, a lot of what editors do is learn to fudge. Uh, and I think, I hope we all try to do it in a way that is towards kindness and understanding. And I, and I, and I think that is what, what often happens. Yeah. Uh, question before you. Um, yeah, I was going to, uh, just going to start by saying that um, I have personal experience of the fact that 
having people sign their way into archives doesn't mean they don't misuse, yeah. quite seriously misuse what they find when they're in the archives and then publish it in ways that are very unsatisfactory. But I've, I'm interested in this copyright and in particular I'm a victim of Victoria's overzealousness about this, that I personally have a substantial collection of interviews on tape, electronic uh, records, which because they were conducted in ways that didn't have all the documentation, which has increasingly become more and more onerous. And in fact, at the time when I was doing some of these interviews, it, that hasn't, I have the relevant documentation for that period of time, but risk-averse librarians won't have anything to do with it. Uh, when I write uh, ask <laughs> entries for the ADB, some of the time I am using resources. Which I have a personal archive. I mean, am I not really allowed to use this? I mean, what, that's just my question. I probably have, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 interviews. And I'm unwilling to hand some of these over. Some of them are duplicates. But I'm unwilling to hand them over to libraries because as far as I'm concerned, I may as well throw them in the tip. If no one's going to be allowed to listen to them, at least they could stay with me. I, I mean, I don't know. Is this a problem? I mean, I think as a group, we should be putting a little bit, trying at least to put a bit more pressure. Some of this privacy le legislation is actually really counterproductive and it's actually how family members are having it. I mean, as historians, we need to at least protest, I think, about this. I'll, I'll, have, a, I'll have a first go at that one. <laughs> um, when I first started collecting data for the Register of Archives of Science in Australia in 1985, thereabouts, I turned every page of all of the ADB volumes. I literally looked at every single page trying to find the key people in who fitted the science, technology, medicine, engineering thing. And the thing I found so often was la di da di da private hands. So when I I'd selected my 1,500 people, or whatever it was, and I also took down the data which was the, the sources and I dutifully registered that la di da di da private hands in every case and with the information that when we went online that they should contact me for further information so I didn't really I, did, I didn't say who had I just said private hands contact and then I went basically would I had my file I would look at it and then I would have a personal correspondence and say that piece of information came from the ADB and, the, and all I know is this you should either contact the ADB or you can try and contact the family who had this I can't see any reason why you cannot have a reference which says your thing's private hands. Why not? And we, we also, the other um, one we have is personal communication. Um, so we've got a number of let out descriptions. And, and, um, and, I, uh, uh, and we, we have all our files over in the archives. So if you really wanted to find out if um, you get permission, um, if it's um, outside the um, you know I your uh, period of um, access, then you can follow that trail, um, and um, we we wouldn't not do that. Um, um, but you can certainly say it's in private hands, and there's you know um, it, it, it's a let out clause. It doesn't require you to uh, um, abide by um, the archives and libraries um, restrictions. Well, and also if if you're not quoting directly from something, you have much more latitude if you're able to paraphrase, which is really not all that different from using any other source. Uh, and I, I think that's the, the easiest way around it. 
Yeah. Well, it's hard. I mean, when you, especially with, it sounds like a wonderful source, but probably you didn't get fully informed consent from people. They may now be dead. And you're kind of caught in this time warp where you were doing the best practice at the time and you have an amazing resource and yet it's going to be very hard for anyone to use it. And I think this idea of pushing back uh, and also the passage of time um, as we get further from living people, it, it does get a little easier. But your audio tapes may be, you know, be decaying by that point. <laughs> Uh, this question is really ad addressed to uh, Melanie and Susan. Um, given the fact that you as authors face constant difficulties in terms of the copyright owned by other people, don't you have an obligation to, in a sense, model good practice by providing as much openness with respect to your own copyright as you can? I mean, I know that the ADB you have taken back the copyright from authors, so you really have the ability to do what you like with it. Why don't you make it, as we did with Tiara and BNZB, Creative Commons with attribution non-commercial? Because what that does is that protects your commercial rights, so that it means that no one can download the text and make a book out of it, but they can use the text in any way that they like, which seems to me that as a public, uh, publicly created resource, you should do everything possible to encourage with attribution. I mean, I'll just give you an example of the way this worked. We published a series of entries about the iwi, the tribes of New Zealand. Two of those tribes have taken our text put it on to the home page of their tribal websites to provide a history of their tribes and then illustrated it themselves. Now, I think this is a fantastic use of the material that we've researched. It's accurate, it's, you know, scholarly, and yet it's being reproduced in a way which I think is admir absolutely admirable. We, we actually do that um, so that the copyright... Um, <laughs> The copyright at the, at the, 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 the on, on the ADB um, website, you know, um, allows you to use it for um, non-commercial purposes as long as you contact us and you have the proper, um, you know, um, attribution. So we have, we are de facto um, operating that, um, that 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 system. And many many people, I mean, we, we just um, we just don't police the ADB. Mm. We, we many people use it. Um, all over the place. It's it's on it's on online. I mean, Wikipedia scrapes it. You know, um, people are using it. It's it's almost effectively um, open access. But we also have many groups who approach us. They've got a publication. Um, the education um, um, people have use it for the curriculum and um, and um, the, the the Commonwealth. So um, you know, it, the the ADB articles are used. It's it's about reproduc reproducing the whole damn thing. Or um, using it, um, um, you know, uh, taking it um, uh, en masse, or it's about a difference in degree involving difference in kind. How much you take and for what purpose. So we still, we still want to, we still want to have a custodial role, but effectively we are operating um, for educational purposes or non-commercial purposes. If someone writes and um, want, even wants to republish, but it's not, they're not going to make a profit out of it, then we, then we, we, we almost certainly give permission. I think I have an entirely different 
situation with the uh, with A and B, where we we are a subscription-based um, project, and we are under the thumb of Oxford University Press, in whose interest it is not to be giving away free content to lots of people. We will, on occasion, give permission for someone to use a piece. But in general, I think it goes back to what I see as a, a great divide in, in biographical dictionaries, whether they are basically open access or whether they are behind a paywall. Uh, and I think that different, different rules do apply. And, and personally, I feel very constrained. I wish I were on the other side of that paywall and could make this wonderful content available to everybody, but I'm not, the, I'm not running OUP and trying to make a business out of it, and I really don't know how you would get to that kind of a model, but I certainly hope we can, because that, to me, is the great beauty of, of having all this information, is being able to freely share it. Um, I've just okay. got one little, little story to tell on that. Uh, involved with um, a group called the ISIS uh, Bibliography, which is the History of Science Bibliography, which started just now over 100 years ago, and it's been running continuously ever since, apart from a short gap in the Second World War. Uh, it's a really large bibliography. It sort of gets up to the sort of Auslit size of things, and that's been um, it's had a version of that data in its more bibliographic form published by EBSCO under a uh, under a, 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 a subscription mm -hmm. basis. Now, the History of Science Society, University of Oklahoma, have been able to renegotiate that contract. So that's still there, and they've got a completely different form of the data on open access, and that's not a problem. Mm. wasn't a problem for EBSCO. So basically, they, they've still got the data going into research institutions through those sort of channels, so it still works there, but they've also got a public, a public version of it. In fact, because we've been able to re-architect the public data, it's much, much better than what EBSCO's got. So. We have one final question. Um, thanks. I, I'm interested in what you do about the wild web and content out there and whether and, and how, I guess, what best practice one should use in, um, <coughs> in using wild web data and how you might cite it. I'll give you an example, a little story. Where, as I mentioned earlier today, we're doing a digitisation project related to first half of the 20th century Australian plays. One of the plays that was, was selected was by a woman called Dorothy Blewett. Um, and I could not find, through any easy means or affordable means, um, her, in her, her estate holder. I knew who he was, but I couldn't access the electoral rolls very easily. And um, I was going to take a risk management approach and digitise with a disclaimer and a takedown option. Um, and then I remembered my father's obsession with family history and his, in his, um, um, and his subscription to Ancestry.com. So, <laughs> so I did a search on Ancestry.com and I found the copies of the electoral roll for Victoria, which is entirely illegal, I understand, that it should it is not allowed to be reproduced and published. But Ancestry.com is out there publishing, making available to their subscribers all of this stuff that you're allowed to put up, images without attribution, etc., etc. Now, I found him there, I got in contact with him, and he has subsequently given me her entire archival collection and permission to digitise it. Now, had I taken that risk management approach and just stopped at that point, I would have 
had one play published and that's it. But now we've got this entire research project going around this playwright and her contemporaries, um, but by using questionable content. So I'd just be interested in your opinion on that. The, uh, I mean, Antrity is a really good example. It's, it's a platform. You have to sign in and you've got to pay money and there are a significant set of terms and conditions that you probably didn't read that you signed up to. So that is, that is an example of the sort of thing I was talking about before, where you have to sign in to get access, and that way they've been able to provide you with stuff that you wouldn't have been able to get access to in the open web. It looks like it's on the open web, but it's not really. It's actually a platform that is behind a, a login and identity process. I mean, we've, we've actually had to write to Ben Mercer and say, look, you your members are putting ADB articles on without attribution and um, um, just bugging them on. And um, would you take them down? You know, so we, we, that's one policing sometimes sometimes do. Why not take them down? Sorry. Why not take them down? Well, as long as they attribute it, it's attributed. It, you know, it's using it um, without indicating where you've got it yeah. from and who wrote it and who's got the intellectual property. I I I, I still think that this is a. Um, um, we do have to insist on um, attribution um, and and also just acknowledging, you know, it's, it's a basis of scholarship, acknowledging where you got your information from um, and also also promoting scholarship. It's, it's one thing um, to use this material but to um, indicate where you got it from so others can, can move on. So it, it, it would all, they, or the alternative not to take it down but put down where they got it from and who wrote it. I wanted just to to make an, a point, I'm thinking about this process where you f where you found this amazing trove of trove. I've learned a new word <laughs> of material, and I think we all need to really pause a moment and think about this moment that we're in. The fact that you were able to, with a few clicks, to actually get to that person, access this material. It is now going to enter the scholarly world, and we really are living in quite an amazing moment of information. I mean, sometimes it's too much, sometimes it's too little, it has problems, um, but that's a, that's a pretty cool story. Uh, and I, I hope that there will be many more like that out there. Well, while we've managed to uh, yeah, consider the legislative framework, We've also negotiated duty of care, risk management and fudging, much more slippery terms which we have to deal with in association with these. I want you to thank, uh, help me thank our speakers here for today and, uh, well, it's a stimulating conversation. We can continue on. Thank you. Thank you.